Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with hearings today before the House Oversight and Reform Committee, at which oil company board members failed to show up to answer questions about big oil's greenwashing, as they publicly claim to be concerned about climate change while increasing drilling leading a climate scientist who testified today to remark that it's like shifting to low-fat potato chips but eating twice as much of them. Joining us is Chris McGreal, a senior writer for The Guardian US and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He has published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. We will discuss his article at The Guardian Alec is driving laws to blacklist companies that boycott the oil industry, and whether laws prepackaged by Alec passed in Texas and about to be passed in West Virginia, Indiana, and Oklahoma to block boycotts of the oil industry will be able to stop big Wall Street asset managers like BlackRock from divesting in oil, as has already happened with coal. Then we'll examine Putin's negotiating and diplomatic skills with a former profiler of world leaders for the State Department who spent five years in Moscow. Joining us is Dr. Kenneth DeClaver, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2016 and is currently a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. We will discuss his article at the Cypher Brief, Negotiate Like Putin. Then finally, we'll look into British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's latest scandal, which has prompted his long-serving close aide to resign and may be the final straw in terms of his own party wanting to rid themselves of this embarrassment that refuses to apologise for his increasingly outrageous behaviour and statements. Joining us is Rob Ford a professor of political science at the University of Manchester in the UK whose research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice and party politics. He's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independent Party. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our non-profit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Chris McGreal, who is a senior writer for The Guardian U.S. and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He has published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America, and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And he has an article at The Guardian, Alec is Driving Laws to Blacklist Companies that Boycott the Oil Industry. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris McGreal. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And today there were hearings before the House Oversight and Reform Committee. They had an earlier hearing in October uh, where a group of oil company executives were put on the record about climate change denial. But today they didn't show up, right? Critics of the oil industry showed up, but uh, 
not the oil executives themselves. So what, what, what did you make of that? Well, it was the board members uh, for the um, f four major companies, the two American, Exxon and uh, Chevron, and then two European, Shell and BP, that invited board members to come and testify. They didn't show up. Uh, a second uh, hearing has been scheduled for next month, uh, at which they will be invited again. And it wasn't clear. I mean, it, it came out in the hearing that they said the timing was bad. So it didn't appear that it was an outright refusal. Um, but of course, uh, you know, a, a big test will be whether they turn up in uh, next month. Uh, if they don't, then of course, that will be taken as a deliberate snub, as a refusal to come and answer questions of of the committee, which was trying to discover it was it basically it was probing whether the oil industry is really making commitments to cut uh, carbon emissions or, or essentially pursuing a public relations campaign uh, to uh, get the criticism over its part in the climate crisis off its back. Well, the chairwoman of the committee, Carolyn Maloney, she sort of hinted uh, that they might subpoena them next time uh, for the hearing scheduled for March the 8th. Quoting her, if they do not agree to appear, the committee will use every tool at its disposal to get the information we need. Seems seems like more. <laughs> seems like she's yes. turning the screws there. It does a little bit. I mean, um, she's also, I think, referring to the fact that the oil industry has refused to release a lot of documents, although they, those documents um, have been subpoenaed. Not all of them have been handed over. And one of the questions they wanted to put to the board members was, you know, why are your companies not handing these documents over? What do you know about it? Um, so they're pressing uh, for those documents, um, which, you know, one assumes the oil industry is hanging on to because they're extremely embarrassing. Uh, but yes, uh, it will be interesting to see whether they go as so far as to uh, to then subpoena the board members as well. And instead of the board members of the oil companies, Michael Mann, for example, distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Pennsylvania State University, he testified, he talked about the oil industry's activities as like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And of course, some of the Republicans on the committee came to the defense of the oil industry, suggesting that uh, they provide good paying jobs and energy for all Americans. So... Just before we get to talking about your article, Alec is driving laws to blacklist companies that boycott the oil industry. Chris, what did you make of today's hearings? Was there anything useful? Oh, I wouldn't say they were particularly enlightening. They're quite furious at times. Um, and lots of speeches were given by various members of Congress. I mean, Michael Mann, who's a professor uh, and climate specialist at Pennsylvania State University, has long documented uh, the the, you know, change in the climate, essentially made the point that a lot of the promises being made by the oil industry are um, are really a, a cover, um, that they say that they're going to cut uh, emissions from productions per, per gallon from productions effectively. But two things are going on here. Firstly, that they're intending to increase uh, their production uh, over the next uh, decades. So their overall emissions will go up. But also, they're only committing to the production to the drilling side of it when is it when 90% of emissions actually come from burning those fuels in people's cars and in other in other ways. So it's a very limited commitment. Um, and he was making the point, he said it, it I think the parallel he, he drew was, 
like telling your doctor you're going to cut back on the amount of potato chips you eat by eating low fat ones, but then eating twice as many. He said the end result isn't any better. Um, and so that was his overall point. He came under quite a lot of attack, um, as did some of the other witnesses uh, from Republicans who who said, well, the Chinese and the Russians are polluting more or they're, they're increasing their production and whose side are you really on here? And there was there was a lot of talk about uh, America needing to be energy, uh, uh, have energy freedom, as it was put by somebody who testified from the Heritage Foundation. It, it was all very ideological and not particularly enlightening, I have to say. And just in reference to your earlier remarks about the subpoenaed documents that the oil companies have yet to turn over. What's already come out now from those earlier hearings is uh, some of these embarrassing documents in Exxon paper in 1988 saying we should emphasize the uncertainty of scientific conclusions regarding the potential enhanced greenhouse effect, stress environmentally sound adaptive efforts, victory will be achieved when average citizens understand and recognize uncertainties in climate science, and then in uh, 2000, ExxonMobil managed to get a advertorial, I guess it's called, in the New York Times, headlined Unsettled Science. So there's quite a bit on the record about climate denial. It's- yes, there is. And I mean, one of the things that came up again at the hearings is that, you know, back in the 70s, Exxon scientists were doing research which told them exactly what was going to happen to uh, the climate. And it proved to be pretty accurate on the whole. Once Exxon was confronted with this in the early 80s, uh, it then shut down the research effectively and hid the results and has been distorting that science, as Carolyn Malone, the chair of the committee, put it, um, uh, lying about it ever since. And so we know quite a lot of what Exxon in particular uh, knew at the time and what it did to to cover it up and and also to pursue a strategy where it tried to shift responsibility away from the oil industry and onto the consumer and to say, no, it's your job as an ordinary American to cut back on uh, climate uh, on climate emissions, on greenhouse gas emissions, not us as oil companies that are producing the fuels that, that you're burning. And again, I'm speaking with Chris McGreal, who's a senior writer for The Guardian US and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He's published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America, and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And he has an article at The Guardian, Alec is Driving Laws to Blacklist Companies that Boycott the Oil Industry. So let's talk about the role of Alec, which is in part funded by the Koch brothers, who are very much in the oil pipeline and refining business. The states of Texas have already passed these laws and now legislatures in West Virginia and Oklahoma and Indiana are introducing a version of this law drafted by ALEC called the Energy Discrimination Elimination Act. I take it that that this kind of cookie-cutter law that ALEC is famous for just basically handing it over to Republican legislatures in a lot of the states across the country, it's based upon the BDS um, anti-boycott law against Israel. Yes, that's right. Um, Alec had a hand in drafting that, the anti-BDS, the anti-boycott divestment and sanctions movement uh, laws, which essentially, well, the the original draft of those laws actually went after individuals and said, um, uh, for example, as it turned out, people like teachers in Kentucky and, and other individuals who wanted, who were on state contracts, 
tracks. Um, we have to sign commitments not to boycott Israel or not to take any action that would lead to a boycott of Israel in support of BDS. Um, those have been struck down uh, by courts around and about, um, and some states have had to change those laws. So now they're principally aimed at, at companies. And what they say is that any company uh, that wants a contract uh, with a, a, a state public entity or have investments from a state public entity, like, for instance, a state teacher's uh, pension fund, has to commit not to boycott Israel. That is now being extended to uh, not boycotting the oil industry and also an, another move to by the um, weapons manufacturers to not uh, boycotting the arms industry. Um, so they've used that model to try and discourage any form of public pressure against the oil industry over the climate crisis. But these anti-BDS legislation, there's an element of absurdity in it. I mean, as you point out in your article, Chris McGreal, the residents of Dickerson, Texas, were required to sign a pledge not to boycott Israel in order to receive hurricane damage relief. And a teacher in Kansas was told that she had to do the same to keep her job. There's a First Amendment issue involved in here in suing against these anti-boycott laws. Could that be employed against the uh, oil companies? I mean, they're already being sued all over the place, and that's largely what's motivating to do what they're doing, isn't it? Yes. So it seems that Alec has learned the lessons of what went wrong with their anti-BDS laws in the sense that they went after the individuals in the way that you, you're, you're saying. So what essentially is happening with the oil industry, what it's been really worried about is the fact that banks and investment firms are pulling back from investment. Um, this was partly sparked by the refusal of uh, some banks to invest in um, to, to give loans and invest in the um, drilling uh, in the Arctic. Um, that alarmed uh, Alaska in particular, um, which tried to move against it. And what these laws do is, is essentially require big corporations, anybody that employs more than 10 people, but essentially they're going after the big investment firms. Essentially what they're trying to do is, is to force larger corporations, potentially financial corporations and banks, uh, not to withdraw funding, not to withdraw loans or other forms of investment from the oil industry. That's that's what this is aimed at, because they're, they're aware that partly under shareholder pressure, public pressure in general, that some of the banks are now starting to step back. They are working into their commitments that they will be climate friendly, that they won't back certain forms of energy, um, for instance, big pressure to withdraw from uh, the coal industry, investments in the coal industry. Now, oil is very afraid that that will be extended to them. And there, as I said, that has already uh, been extended to um, issues around loans for drilling in the Arctic. So this is a this is a measure to try and head that off, really. Well, apparently they're targeting BlackRock, which is a big uh, hedge fund investment vehicle that has, what, something like $10 trillion? And the state of Texas is going to deny them what twenty billion is it? Do I have these figures right? By their yeah, pension right. funds. So Texas has already passed this law. It was the first state to do so. It passed it last June, and so um, Texas has started to draw up lists of companies that it says are effectively boycotting the oil industry. And the lieutenant governor of uh, Texas, Dan Patrick, 
has now moved to put BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager, uh, as you say, $10 trillion top of its list. So it's blacklisting the blacklisters effectively. Now, BlackRock says they're not blacklisting at all. They're simply shifting their their emphasis uh, away in some ways from fossil fuels. They actually remain very heavily invested in certain kinds of fossil fuels uh, through broad energy funds, the uh, market funds. But Patrick thinks that BlackRock being so big is setting a bad example. He's actually accused the BlackRock chairman and CEO Larry Fink of kind of making reassuring statements in private to the state uh, by saying that the company was, and the quote here from Patrick, committed to Texas and Texas's vast energy footprint, but then taking a different position in public by pledging to pressure energy firms to work towards net carbon zero. Anyway, one way or the other, BlackRock has ended up top of Texas's blacklist. And as you say, that would mean they'd lose about a $20 billion Texas public sector pension fund investment. Um, It's not clear how much more than that it would cost BlackRock. Um, But this is meant to be sending a message out to companies, uh, financial companies, that Texas will move against them. So this lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, a former right-wing talk show host, he's obviously up for re-election, being challenged by the former Republican operative uh, Matthew Dowd. But also you've got uh, Senator Ted Cruz carrying water for ALEC and for the oil companies, along with former Governor uh, Rick Perry. So how would you you characterize the kind of order of battle here between the environmentalists and the Texans? It would seem to me that public opinion is largely shifting in favor of the environmentalists, is it not? I think it is, but I don't think that would necessarily be true in Texas. And I think the Republican political leadership in Texas thinks it's really got nothing to lose by going out and fighting as hard as it can for for companies like uh, Exxon. I mean, there's actually a case that's uh, expected to come up before the Texas Supreme Court where Exxon's effectively attempting to sue uh, California officials for suing it. And... Um, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who appointed half of the members of the Texas Supreme Court, actually wrote to the court urging them to find in favor of of um, Exxon. And in all of that, you see Exxon and the oil industry as a whole very much portrayed in terms of, you know, this is what keeps Texas going. This is uh, crucial to us. We have to defend it at every turn. And I think that's that's what this is about. Um, more broadly across the, the country, yes, absolutely, you're right, there's a shift. Um, but I don't think that shift um, is something that's having a big impact on Texas politics right now. And uh, you mentioned California suing along with Hawaii and Rhode Island. They're suing under the notion of these oil companies creating a public nuisance. Just in closing then, is there any chance that these Wall Street hedge funds and asset managers with this immense power and these huge amounts, $10 trillion with that BlackRock controls, can win this battle against the oil companies. I mean, the biggest companies in the world now are all these Silicon Valley tech companies like Alphabet and Google and Microsoft and Apple, etc. So it was only a few years ago that, that ExxonMobil was the most powerful, richest company in the world, but they've been eclipsed, but they've still got some power, haven't they? 
Yeah, they have. I mean, I, I think, you know, this is this is the issue of our age, the climate crisis. And I think in the end, BlackRock saying, look, it's going to back away from burning fossil fuels, backing companies that burning that burn fossil fuels won't lose it a lot of support away from places like Texas. I, you know, I, I think that as we heard at the hearing today that that the oil industry is fighting hard, but it is on the back foot. It is it is clearly it's gone from denying climate science or saying that the jury's out on climate science to now saying it accepts the science, um, but then essentially trying to massage the figures. So I think, you know, the that reality extends to lots of things, including financial investment. I mean, BlackRock, $10 trillion of investments and only $20 billion of that comes from the Texas public sector. So yeah, I think that they can probably, they think they can probably afford to uh, lose the business. Um, they may take a public relations hit and that might overall hit their business, but they, they'll be weighing that up against being seen to fund things like Arctic drilling. Um, and I think we probably know that the broad kind of drift of public opinion, as you said earlier, is increasingly against at least the way the oil companies, the major oil companies are are operating now and their intent to not only carry on as they are, but to increase drilling. And and I, I can't imagine that the big financial companies think that's something that they've really got to, uh, you know, it's in their interests to ally themselves with. Well, Chris McGrill, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Chris McGreal, who's a senior writer for The Guardian US and a former correspondent in Jerusalem and Johannesburg. He's published several articles on the opioid epidemic in America, and his latest book is American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And he has an article at The Guardian, Alec is driving laws to blacklist companies that boycott the oil industry. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining Putin's negotiating and diplomatic skills with a former profiler of world leaders for the State Department who spent five years in Moscow. You need a full stomach to go and drill for oil. They want you to live in a cave No channel to broadcast on Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org Joining us now, Dr. Kenneth DeClaver who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2018 and is a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. And he has an article, The Cypher Brief, Negotiate Like Putin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Kenneth DeClaver. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Kenneth. President Macron of France uh, had a meeting with Putin that went long way into the, into the morning hours with a press conference and a long dinner, seven-course dinner, after which the French president released statements saying that they'd made an agreement uh, that the Russians wouldn't deploy any more forces on Ukraine's borders. But shortly thereafter, Putin's spokesperson, Peskov, said he didn't know about any such agreement. So let's begin with that. Is Putin 
can he be trusted as an interlocutor? I mean, Macron thought he got an agreement, and it sounds like he didn't. Well, he, I think the correct answer is, as in this is the most complex possible diplomatic negotiation that we're talking about. So we have many such times when the interlocutors on both sides feel they may have had an agreement, but how they interpret the agreement or the prism through which they see it or the filter can be different. So I think that's probably what's going on. But I think this this says little about uh, uh, an agreement that is binding per se. I think it's more important as an opening toward that kind of an agreement and an opening for diplomacy, the fact that President Putin spent six plus hours with President Macron uh, shows President Putin's desire to sort of play the diplomat role. We've seen him do this throughout his 21-year career as as president of Russia to dial the pressure up and then step back from the pressure and, and showcase his remarkable diplomatic abilities. And I think that's what he's done. And it serves President Macron's interest because France is holds the EU presidency right now for six months, and President Macron is up for re-election. And this puts him really at the center of the world stage in this very complex, high-stakes diplomacy. And he's got the um, new German chancellor showing up on uh, February the 15th at the Kremlin as well. And he's got that long table, right? Have you seen pictures of it, Ken? <laughs> yes, yes. The, 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 the famous table. But I, I think what's fascinating about that is that Putin, one of Putin's goals is to is to do diplomacy with the EU, but not with the EU as a block. But uh, he even recalled his EU ambassador uh, in the last uh, six months, if I recall, but to sort of divide the EU, because he knows if he divides the EU diplomatically and makes separate deals, for lack of a better term, with with France, with Germany, with Austria, with Italy, then that will serve his larger strategic purpose, which is really to divide NATO. And you spent, what, five years in Moscow? That's correct. With the State Department. So give us your brief description of why you find Putin an impressive adversary. Well, I think, I think, he's, I think he's, number one, he's a He's a brilliant person, and he understands diplomacy. He's, he himself has written and, and spoken that he's a specialist in human relations. He's a, he's a KGB-trained intelligence officer who uses those skills to the maximum to secure advantage and minimize his risk. And he's also shown really, I think, in my opinion, uh, supreme and outstanding political and diplomatic abilities over the years. Uh, this is a, a gentleman who who has met dozens of world leaders in the last 21 years. And when he was uh, the vice mayor of St. Petersburg and in charge of its business relations with the external investors, he also met with hundreds, if not more, business leaders and politicians uh, during that time in the 90s. So he has a large wealth of experience that he can put uh, to good use. I also see him as a strate- as a master strategist, not merely a tactician who is who has really played a deft game here in the last several months 
to achieve his and Russia's strategic aims. Well, he's been, just in the last week, he's met with the Chinese leader in Beijing on Friday. He'd met with the the new president of Iran. And as we mentioned, Macron, and he's got Scholz coming up uh, next week. So it's pretty impressive, the people that have been rotating in and out of the Kremlin, uh, sitting at the end of that long table. Yes, it's, it's, it's highly impressive. And I think he's already, in a sense, achieved... His strategic aims, one of them is for Russia to be a player on the world stage and for him to be a player on the world stage, to be respected. That really goes a long way with with President Putin's mindset. And the other is to achieve the strategic goals of of weakening NATO and, and stopping NATO's eastern march, in, in his words. Uh, because I think it's pretty clear now that the Ukraine will likely not become uh, a member of NATO. So I think Putin has achieved some of the initial goals that he set out to with this kind of hybrid, hybrid, really diplomacy, but hybrid warfare, a combination of, of information warfare, uh, posturing with the military, diplomacy, economic sanctions, you know, pressures in terms of the threats to turn off the gas to the Ukraine and Western Europe. And, and other variables like that that he's used very skillfully. He's, 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 if it's a new Cold War, he's fighting it with a 21st century toolbox uh, and doing it expertly. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Kenneth DeClaver, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2018 and is a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. And he has an article, The Cipher Brief, Negotiate Like Putin. So Putin perceives, and so does Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un, and Iran's supreme leader, according to your article, uh, Ken, he perceives Biden as being weak. Is that universally understood? I mean... The press in this country also perceive him as being weak, and they're starting to write him off. But uh, that seems a little premature. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think one has to be uh, one has to be careful. I think you're correct that that these adversaries may perceive President Biden as weak, and that that could lead them to to make mistakes of imperial overreach, overreach if you will. I think, I think they see President Biden as politically weakened because of a divided nation and because of the upcoming uh, midterms, because of his age. It's not clear if he'll run again. And they see, I think our adversaries uh, see this. And also following the Afghanistan, uh, the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think that variable is very important in terms of their uh, perceptions and, and using this time to strategically leverage their assets against the West. So I think there's a grain of truth in that. It may not be correct or fair, but that's how they, I think, perceive it. And you also mentioned in your article at Cypher Brief, Negotiate Like Putin, that Putin's not afraid of the... And I know they've created a rainy day fund uh, at the Kremlin in the event of more sanctions, but he's not worried about being cut off from the Swiss um, interbank system. My understanding is that Putin and the oligarchs, the Siloviki, have about a trillion dollars in dark money stashed abroad. 
So how do they use that money in order to uh, get around sanctions? What's the process there? I, I don't know the exact, I'm not an economist, so I can't comment on that. But if you read Catherine Belton's book, she talks about this. They have anywhere, we don't actually know the total amount, but it's thought to be more than $1 trillion in banks throughout Western Europe, but in Britain and Switzerland and France and Germany and Italy and in Austria. And if, if, I don't think sanctions, uh, the Russian Federation has been under sanctions since uh, various types since 2014 during the, uh, the invasion and takeover, the illegal invasion and takeover of Crimea. And that, that hasn't really deterred or changed their behavior or President Putin's behavior. And I think the threats uh, to cut them out of SWIFT or a paper tiger, because if they pulled all those funds out of those banks, uh, that would there, there's a real risk that that could create a, a worsening uh, recession. So I don't I don't see that threat as as being compelling to change Vladimir Putin's behavior. But what about the threats that were expressed yesterday in the White House by President Biden and the new Chancellor Scholz, even though Scholz didn't unequivocally state that he was in favor of cutting off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, in the event of a Russian attack on Ukraine. Biden kept inf- insisting that that was a deal. That's certainly not going to do Putin any good. And as you point out, if he does attack Ukraine, previously neutral neighbors like Sweden and Finland will probably want to join NATO. And, they'll, and of course, NATO's defense budget will go up hugely. So all of these are reasons why it doesn't make sense. If he's as smart as you say he is, Ken, I can't see him then wanting to face those consequences. I, I think even though he can weather those consequences, uh, he he's signed a recent intent to sign a huge oil deal with China. I think the, and the Nord Stream, I think your point is well taken that, that uh, Chancellor Schultz was much more lukewarm about that statement than President Biden. And Vladimir Putin knows that the German elites are uh, a large component of them are for Nord Stream, and they're, they're, they're much more pro-Russian than people realize. So I think he knows that those factors favor him. But the key factor that, that I've written about, and I may be wrong, but I think in a hybrid warfare situation, Vladimir Putin doesn't need to militarily invade uh, the Ukraine. He's already achieved many of his goals. And, and he's certainly in his recent statements over the last week or two has, has, in his behavior, i.e. meeting with Schultz, uh, upcoming meeting, meeting with President Macron, has shown that there are windows for diplomacy. But to counter that, uh, the West, and the United States will need even more expert diplomacy. You know, we have the capabilities and tremendous people that can do that, but that's probably the best way to resolve this in the short, you know, some type of uh, coming to an agreement on the Minsk Accords and the, a longer-term agreement that includes our European partners, a rewriting of the European security architecture. But there are certainly, there are certainly many different positions and options for diplomacy that can be done. And readmitting Putin into the G8, apparently, is also an option. But let's talk a little bit about your suggestion 
that Biden should appoint a special envoy, possibly a distinguished Republican or somebody like that, that would be able to go to the Kremlin and sit at the long table and work out a deal. Flesh that out for us, will you? Well, I, I really am borrowing from what worked out historically with the with the Northern Ireland Accords and the historic role of Senator George Mitchell. I think if I think a special envoy would would give President Biden more leverage and negotiating leverage and flexibility uh, that may be difficult for for him as president because of his role. To, to have for political reasons. And I think that would be one way that, that in these type of negotiations, sometimes that can work. It would have to be the right person. Uh, and, and I mentioned if he picked a Republican, it would show the bipartisanship and, and name, you know, names that, that get bandied about or, you know, former high level senators or a former president or someone like, uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, people that are familiar with the security issues at hand and have the the gravitas to go toe-to-toe with President Putin. Well, I'm not sure that Putin would be that comfortable with a, an African-American woman, though. I mean, I guess uh, James Baker is not... <laughs> he's too elderly for this job, right? They keep talking about that. Baker's pledge with uh, Gorbachev in uh, a meeting in the Kremlin in 1990, saying that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. Of course, George H.W. Bush immediately shot that down. So that that didn't even get much past Baker's lips, but it's become a kind of cornerstone of, of, of Russia's belief system about NATO expansion. Yes, that's correct. And I think it's 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 very aspirational on their part. And it's it's something that that Putin wants to achieve, which is sort of a rollback or a, a, at a minimum a halt uh, to NATO expansion, a, a moratorium, if you will, and and also a, a withdrawal of the missiles from Romania and Poland. But these are all in the world of diplomacy. I'm talking about negotiation psychology here. I'm not a diplomatic negotiator, but these are all things that can be negotiated. And I think um, President Putin has left small, but but enough openings for for a beginning of that. The fact that he's meeting with President Macron, that he's going to meet with Schultz, uh, that he that he went to uh, Beijing for the Winter Olympics and met with President Xi Jinping, are all encouraging signs that that diplomacy is very much in the air. I think if and and. If Putin wanted to invade, he already would have done it, just like he did in Crimea in 2014. And thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Kenneth DeClever. Thank you very much. I appreciate your call. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Kenneth DeClever, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2018 and is a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. And he has an article, The Cypher Brief, Negotiate Like Putin. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's latest scandal, which has prompted his long-serving closer aide to resign and maybe the final straw in terms of his own party wanting to rid themselves of this embarrassment that refuses to apologize for his increasingly outrageous behavior and statements. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rob Ford, a professor of political science at the University of Manchester in the UK, whose research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice, and party politics. He's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independence Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rob Ford. Good evening. Good evening, and how much scandal can Boris Johnson dodge? I mean, he's he's been mired in in the Partygate scandals as more and more information comes out about these series of parties during the lockdown while they were having a lot of fun at Number 10. The rest of the country were expected to behave themselves. So now it just seems to have crossed a line where... The leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, was leaving Parliament House yesterday, Monday, and he was assaulted by a group of anti-vaxxers, uh, and he had to be rescued by the police. And the anti-vaxxers were shouting things like traitor and accusing him of protecting pedophiles. And the reason that they were saying that was because Boris Johnson had recently said that Keir Starmer, who was previously a public prosecutor, is responsible for the pedophile Jimmy Savile dodging being indicted by the public prosecutor's office uh, who felt that he they didn't have enough evidence against him, but he was a serial pedophile, and obviously a lot of people in the UK wished he would have been brought to justice before he died. So that's a pretty low blow, isn't it, Rob? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, there are a couple of the details that are worth unpacking about this for non-British listeners. The first is that the Savile scandal, we, we, we like other countries, have had a number of sex scandals over the years. Uh, and the Savile scandal was probably the highest profile a sex scandal that that we've seen in Britain in in probably the last couple of decades. Jimmy Savile was a presenter who was on all sorts of different TV and radio shows for about four or five decades. He was knighted by the Queen uh, on the recommendation of a previous government. Uh, he was considered to be, you know, part of the institutional architecture, a national treasure, as they like to say here. Then it emerged that he had been engaged in a sickeningly prolific amount of child abuse over many, many years. Uh, so it was a huge crisis at the BBC, which was his main employer. And the reason I raise all of this as background is because what it's really important to remember about what Johnson did is the Savile scandal and the, the link between Savile and the CPS and Keir Starmer. This wasn't a link that these protesters made because of Johnson. This was a link that many of these kind of conspiratorial far-right groups have been making for years, um, because they tend to associate Savile with all the groups in the political establishment that they dislike. They see him as a symbol of uh, establishment cover-up, establishment not listening to the people and so on. So this was not Johnson creating a far-right trope. It was Johnson using an existing far-right argument in Parliament and thereby handing it, handing it legitimacy. He was saying in Parliament a completely false thing that is said in the darker recesses of the internet 
by people who violently dislike the political class. So it was extremely dangerous behaviour and, and recognised as such, more or less instantly, a very large number of his own backbenchers have criticised this very strongly. Um, so it was an extraordinary moment. And then the events we saw yesterday night with Starmer being uh, assailed by protesters were an entirely predictable consequence of what Johnson had done. And indeed, that kind of outcome was predicted more or less instantaneously when he said it. So, you know, this is very much predictable and predicted consequence of outrageous behaviour. And you mentioned some of the conservative backbenchers, members of Johnson's own party. One of them, Tobias Elwood, said, PM, apologise, please. Let's stop this drift towards Trumpian style of politics from becoming the norm. We are better than this. Now, it's also led uh, some of his top aides, so the Chancellor of the Exchequer has uh, been critical of him, and his longtime uh, political aide, Munira Mirza, quit over Boris Johnson's Savile comments, calling them, quote, scurrilous accusation in her resignation letter. This is correct. Uh, I mean, in particular, and I think this is this this really gets to the heart of, in a sense, what one of Johnson's personality traits that is burning a lot of remaining bridges for him at the moment. Mirza specifically cited in her regress, uh, her, her resignation letter, uh, Johnson's refusal to apologise for what he said. And this has become a repeating theme with Johnson over recent months with the various scandals that have unfolded and embroiled his government, um, is that over and over again, what you get is, first of all, a refusal to admit that anything had happened. Then after the admission that something had happened, a refusal to take any responsibility. Then after the, the taking of responsibility happens, finally, a refusal to apologise. So on every single occasion, he behaves like the bratty school child who will not take responsibility for his behaviour. And it's that kind of behaviour that seems in particular to be frustrating even some of his closest allies. I mean, it really can't be overstated how symbolically important Manira Mirza's resignation was seen because she is an ultra-loyalist to Johnson. She's worked with him since the early days of his time as mayor of London. So the fact that this was too much for her and specifically his refusal once again to take responsibility for the consequences of what he'd said and apologize for it thereby admitting error is is what has really hurt him in terms of that particular advisor in terms of a number of his MPs as you mentioned Tobias Elwood specifically called for an apology but so far, no such apology has been forthcoming from number 10. And I wouldn't be particularly optimistic about getting one either. And again, I'm speaking with Rob Ford, who's a professor of political science at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom, whose research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice and party politics. And he's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independent Party. And we're talking about the latest scandal involving Boris Johnson, who clearly is not a serious person. I can't imagine any world leader takes him seriously. Uh, he's one of the main proponents of Brexit. But what is happening now and what you're talking about in terms of consequences and taking responsibility, Rob Ford, is the fact that there have been a number 
of high-profile attacks on British politicians. Last year, the British lawmaker David Arness, conservative lawmaker, he was stabbed to death. And before then, Joe Cox, uh, another MP, uh, in this time a Labour MP, was murdered on the streets of uh, London in 2016 by a white supremacist. And that was during the Brexit referendum debate. Uh, And, of course, the assailant was fired up, (laughs) to some extent, with Johnson's rhetoric. Again, going back to that, because he was the main proponent of Brexit, and this white supremacist was believing that the Labour Party were allowing immigrants to flood the country. So we've talked a lot in the past, Rob, about Brexit and what a counterintuitive and boneheaded thing it was and how destructive it's been to British politics. Has has there been a kind of national awakening at the end of the day that none of the promises uh, are worked out and it's been an unmitigated disaster? Is that Have minds been changed in terms of the, the Brexiteers? Um, in a word, no. Uh, the, the balance of national opinion on Brexit hasn't really changed at all. And the reason for that is because opinions about Brexit are now really not at all uh, about what outcomes Brexit delivers. Um, they've become an aspect of people's sort of political identity, their social identity, their tribal identity. So Brexit is not something you want, it's something you are. Brexiteers see themselves as people who think in a certain way, emphasise certain kind of values, and most critically are different to uh, the outgroup as they see it, the enemy as they see it, which is Remainers, and Remainers think likewise in the opposite direction. So Leave and Remain have become more like Republican and Democrat as identities than they are like differences of opinion over trade policy uh, or anything like that. And the reason that that's an important point to flag up is because what we know from a lot of political psychology research over many years is that that kind of partisanship becomes a lens that distorts everything that you see in politics. Uh, It distorts whether or not you see that things aren't working out as you hoped. And even if you recognise that the positive outcomes you were told to expect aren't coming, it distorts who you attribute responsibility to for that. So Brexiteers are are disinclined to see Brexit as a negative phenomenon, even if evidence mounts of costs and disruption and so forth. But if they recognise costs and disruption, they are very inclined to place the blame for those things elsewhere on the EU, on the opponents of Brexit and so forth. That has been the dynamic pretty much since the referendum result landed. And incidentally, it's a dynamic that applies with equal force uh, to Remainers, who have with great eagerness heaped opprobrium on Brexiteers for all sorts of political outcomes, many of which have nothing at all to do with Brexit. Um, So what you get is a sort of self-perpetuating situation, um, which Jonathan Swift would have recognised many centuries ago, where uh, all sorts of uh, arguments become essentially name-calling matches between two deeply entrenched political tribes. And if that sounds like a fairly depressing state of affairs, well, number one, it is. But number two, unfortunately, much of politics, more of the time than we would like to admit, actually functions like that. The degree to which voters, politicians, partisans, even the media actually report and respond to things in terms of how they're actually happening, as opposed to in terms of which team is up and which team is down is, you know, not as much of the time as we would hope in a democracy, frankly. 
Well, you're describing pretty much the political condition here in the United States uh, where Trump supporters are completely unreachable by reason and information and logic that they're dug in and they believe for some reason or other that you know, he's their leader and they want him to be re-elected and it may happen. He may get re-elected because of enormous comprehensive voter suppression on the part of the Republicans. So there is a, a comparison there that you can make between Johnson and his reckless and dishonest politics and the ruinous you know, four years of Donald Trump, which culminated in a an insurrection against the very citadel of American democracy. So I feel a certain kinship there in despair, (laughs) (laughs) if that's in any way uh, worth discussing. Yeah, I mean, there are are some commonalities between um, Brexit and Trump, Johnson and Trump. They both involved similar kinds of anti- establishment anti-elite resentment very broadly conceived very emotive not very reasoning and it's very much like you don't like the status quo this is a thing that will mess up the status quo therefore you should do this what have you got to lose and in both cases the largely predictable consequence of that was an awful lot of chaos and in both cases uh, uh, the, the the leader of these uprisings was themselves an agent of chaos trump is an agent of chaos johnson in many respects uh, too but <clears throat> i guess there are some ways in which i'm a little bit more optimistic about the british context than i am about the american context the first is that i think british institutions have not faced anything of the magnitude of the january 6th Uh, insurrection as yet. And we do not have, as you have in America, uh, a a political party that is fully rode in behind a leader who is actively looking to undermine the very basic founding, you know, founding institutions of a democracy, you know, the fair vote, the electoral count process and stuff like this. You know, Republican leaders now have to sign up to what are manifestly fictions about what happened in the 2020 election. Conservative politicians are not in a place like that yet, um, thankfully. Secondly, what we have seen in the past few months is that voters in Britain are responsive to bad behaviour by the incumbent government uh, to a pretty big degree. So a year ago, perhaps, or not even that, six or seven months ago, Boris Johnson's approval ratings were remarkably high for an incumbent politician uh, leading a party that had been in charge for over a decade. They have completely collapsed in the past few months in the wake of the scandals that he's faced. He is now less popular than Jeremy Corbyn was when Johnson defeated him in a landslide in 2019. He is less popular than Theresa May was at any point in her much Uh, in her sort of uh, very difficult and conflict-strewn premiership. There are only a couple of times in the entire polling history that we have a prime minister as unpopular as Johnson is now. The last one uh, was John Major in the midst of a very deep recession in 1993 after Britain was thrown out of the European exchange rate mechanism, which is 30-odd years ago. So it does seem that voters have responded to 
the chaos that has been seen in Downing Street, the disregard for the rules that has been seen in Downing Street. And their response has been pretty emphatic. We won't stand for this. And if anything, that does give me some optimism about there's some basic still norms and standards amongst British voters. And when they see politicians violating those norms, their reaction is pretty hostile. So we may see Johnson go as Trump comes back, Johnson goes. So I thank you for joining us, Rob Ford. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Rob Ford, who's a professor of political science at the University of Manchester in the UK, whose research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice and party politics. And he's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independent Party. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door.